welcome. My name is Sophie Scott-Brown and I'm your host of Any Further Questions. If you haven't listened to them already, eight episodes of Any Further Questions are all available to listen to on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, so please do go ahead and check them out now. My guest today, my guests in fact, is our IT livery company Professor of Information Technology, Victoria Baines, and she is joined by Dr. Ashwin Chari, Clinical Lecturer in Neurosurgery at UCL, and they're very kindly agreed to join us to cover all those questions that they didn't get time to answer during Victoria's second lecture of the new series, um, which was Brain-Computer Interfaces. So, guys, uh, hello, welcome, thank you very much for joining us. So shall we jump straight in? What would be the drawbacks to an implant going wrong or having the wrong neurolinks in the wrong links of the brain? Ashwin, I'm going to let you answer that from the neurosurgical perspective and then I'll have a think about the IT and security side. I think that makes sense. Um, Implants uh, can be both removable or not removable. Um, And certainly the current implants that we have Um, There are situations where the lead fractures or gets infected uh, and they are removable. So a deep brain stimulator, for example, can be removed safely, especially with new technology like Elon Musk's uh, Neuralink. um, The the threads uh, are thinner than a human hair and therefore we don't know whether these are removable or not. And if we try to remove them, what impact they will have on that area of the brain. Uh, And it's certainly something that needs to be looked into very carefully before wide-scale implementation of these. In terms of where in the brain they get put in, I think that's another interesting question and certainly somewhere uh, where we have to increase our understanding. I think from a lot of parts of the brain, you should be able to get useful information to read relevant signals that you want to. So it may be that even if it's not quite in the exact correct position, they're still useful. And I think from my perspective, it's at a step removed really. In the lecture, I touched on things like communication via Bluetooth, which is what Neuralink and lots of other implants um, use. And and then really thinking about um, those signals and the security of those signals in transit not so much whether it's in the right part of the brain or the wrong part of the brain, but thinking about also the um, rechargeable batteries in implants, that we have that degradation over time that from a, a, a digital and technical perspective can mean that we actually don't know for certain how long these implants can function in humans. So if we look at an organisation like Neuralink, they've just got FDA approval in the US to start testing on human patients we're at a frontier of that really because a lot of the testing has been done on animals in laboratory conditions how this works on humans having these the most portable if you like the the most um self-sufficient little kind of miniaturized implants um that technical obsolescence we don't know exactly how that's going to pan out yet and um, again, in the lecture, I talk about technological obsolescence, the, the, the instances we've had where people have had retinal implants, but the company's gone bust. And then those implants haven't been supported with either maintenance or parts. So we could have people with implants, if it's if it's in a kind of nightmare, uncontrolled, unregulated situation, we could have people with neural implants Um, who, if they've been implanted by a startup, 
could find that those implants aren't supported. So central research programmes, it seems to me, centrally funded research programmes are very, very important in this space to counteract technological obsolescence. Or, or if I may add to that, there's got to be some regulation in place that means that there is interoperability. So very much like all mobile phones, including the iPhone now switching to one type of charging cable, you know, there's got to be some uh, interoperability so that a different company could supply parts for a company that's gone bust, for example. Right. And to that point, I think we had a question about regulation, didn't we? Um, that Asking about, um, you know, is regulation always going to be behind the curve? I don't know about your experience in the the neuroscience aspect, Ashwin, but for me, certainly in IT, regulation is many years behind the curve most of the time and trying to retrofit controls when technology is rapidly outstripping the status quo on a kind of daily, hourly basis means that it can be really, really challenging to say, stop, As as we're trying to do at the moment with artificial intelligence hit the pause button, then make decisions about how we want to regulate it in the future. Yeah, and, and medical regulation, I I would suspect, is even slower than IT regulation. So we're probably three decades behind where right. we should be at the moment. Right. I mean, there feels to me a couple of things I'd like to pick up on, if you don't mind. For those of you who haven't, or have, it's been a while since you uh, watched the first or the original lecture, Maybe we could just unpack a couple of things that I know you did cover in that lecture, but it's useful to recap. So if we could just talk on a more basic level about the kind of range of uses of these implants in the brain, for example, medically, like you mentioned retinal. So what sort of functions are these implants doing? What do we want them to be? What useful work are they doing for us? Well, maybe you could talk about some of the work that that you do, which is, I mean, fascinating to me, but also so impactful on people's lives. Mm. I think currently the the easiest way to look at it is you have implants that either read signals from the brain or try to stimulate the brain to change its function. Um, And so an an example of something that reads from the brain, for example, is something that we use um, in epilepsy all the time. So people who have uncontrolled fits or seizures, uh, we can record from different parts of their brain to figure out where their seizures are coming from. Uh, And this is something that is commonly done across the world. Um, But therein is uh, an opportunity to study how Uh, our brain functions and how these signals are different between different individuals, um, what signals subserve particular functions, uh, and whether in someone who, for example, cannot move their left arm because they've had a stroke, can we read from a part of their brain and figure out what they want to do with their left arm to control an, uh, uh, an, an exogenous object like a robot or something. The second uh, part is writing to the brain. So can we send electrical signals into the brain to either disrupt the current function or to change that current function in some way? Um, And the common example that we have now is deep brain stimulation, which is very common for things like Parkinson's disease, where people have uncontrollable tremor. uh, And we put an electrode into specific areas of the brain, send electrical signals through these electrodes, and that works to uh, interrupt the circuits that are causing that tremor Uh, and really restore uh, quality of life and function in these individuals. And with a lot of technology that starts off in medicine, we have that promise of dual purpose uses. So um, when I was looking at how technology that's been developed to read and write um, might be applied to 
other spheres and other sectors. Um, it's really interesting to think about um, Neuralink's mission statement, which is you know to help people who have had um, neural injury, but then also to look into the future about how they might augment humans. And there are some real target markets here. And the first one is you know the military are always super interested in any technology that's being developed um, by clinicians, um, particularly the the US Department of Defense. They issued this really fascinating report about the um, the cyborg soldier of 2050 that they might be able to use brain to ba- to brain communication um, to communicate by thought with their comrades. Um, so there's this idea of them having you know a visual uh, augmentation, aural augmentation, and then brain to brain communication uh, with with other serving soldiers. Um, this idea that they could be souped up human beings. We've also got, of course, a particular interest in the gaming community. That, you know, this idea that you might be able to game at the speed of thought, um, which if you're someone who's a professional gamer, where there are quite substantial financial rewards, you might have a go at that. Um, And, um, you know, particularly where it may be the case that gaming using your brain signals is faster than uh, you know, your mechanical reflexes. And and I think there's some doubt about that because the whole point of reflex is that it's quicker than you can think. So um, I, I, it'd be really interesting to test that out with a bunch of uh, professional e-gamers in the not-too-distant future. But then there's lots of other more kind of recreational and workplace applications. Musical composition is a really, really interesting space where this is starting to happen. Um, So we have things like the encephalophone, um, which takes EEG brain data and uh, transforms that into a synthetic piano. And then um, there's a project called Brainy Beats that we talked about in the lecture, where that actually takes the, the EEG signals from two people and the kind of noise that comes out depends on the synchrony, you know, the harmony, if you like, between um, those two people's brain data. Wow. OK, so there's um, a lot of a real range of uses and a lot more than people may necessarily be aware of. One thing that really uh, strikes me related to this is going back to some of the risky elements that you talked about. And you, we mentioned on on. Uh, touched on regulation. There's a couple of other elements I think that would be quite interesting to pull out. Um, A lot of these technologies actually have a really sort of strong assumption or a working account of, well, they have a theory of mind, how mind works. They have essentially a philosophy of mind. And these seems to be quite very much based on computational models or um, sort of very biological notions. Um, Ashwin, you mentioned, you know, we try and sort of anticipate what the brain wanted to do as if there was a degree of agency going on there and therefore those then presumably are translated into coded signals. Is that enough of a conversation about you know sort of what the activity of thinking is and is there any sort of worry or concern we might have that this technology is sort of uh, overimposing or superimposing particular concepts of what it is to think? I I think there's there's two ways to look at it and I'll start by looking at it from the kind of scientific perspective, which is that if we are able to decode, in a way, the the neurobiology of what it is to think, what it is to make certain decisions, and I think there's a lot of science out there already on this particular subject, um, which I'm not overly familiar with, 
then then that's only a good thing you know that that goes towards trying to explain how our brain works um how our brain uh may dysfunction in certain disease states and therefore how we can restore function towards normal whatever that may be um and so i think from a from a purely scientific and and medical sense any understanding that we can have on how to or, or on how we think and the neural basis of that is potentially helpful to help people who have certain diseases and i think you know if we're approaching this from the perspective of it's role in that i do think it's very interesting that at the moment there's a lot of debate around generative ai and the extent to which it is sentient not necessarily conscious but this it it, it sometimes gives an appearance a semblance of sentience to the extent that you know we have had developers suddenly say oh, i think i think the chatbot i've developed is sentient um i think it's worth restating the case though that what chat gpt does what generative ai does is it predicts the word that should come next so it's not thinking it's reproducing patterns of communication and patterns of speech um and but the sheer fact that we think it's thinking says a lot about us as humans that we we're, we're looking to find um a technology that thinks like we do and and one of the things i think we covered in the partly in the q and a session um after the lecture was that you know we interact with chatbots as if they're real people to some degree we know full well that quite often when we're interacting with a chatbot that it is just data that it is just a large language model or whatever um but we will say potentially please and thank you to it because that's how we treat humans who think and are aware um so one of the things i'm particularly interested in right now and not necessarily specifically to to uh, brain computer interfaces but just in general with our interactions with it and the human centricity of that um is how we stay human and humane when we're interacting with technology you know in the same way that um so many of us thank alexa and i help my robot vacuum cleaner over obstacles in my house and i talk to it when it does a good job and i i you know i chide it when it doesn't do as well as i expected but there's something about transposing that humanity onto the technical tools that we're using that will probably keep us more humane in the long run. It's a really interesting word you say tools um and I think you mentioned in the lecture if I'm right that uh, you talk about how actually we already kind of outsource a lot of functions of the human body in order to make our lives easier even on a sort of crude level the the stomach uh, you could say the oven is a sort of outsourcing of of the sort of work the stomach does. So do you uphold then in your respective spheres that there is quite a clear difference between the organic mind as it were and these and these implants and what have you they're very much tools that will assist us provided we can keep control of them i i would go to the other side of that i think um one of the things that i'm consistently struck by and that we certainly covered in the metaverse lecture last year is that it's getting increasingly difficult to distinguish between 
cyberspace and meat space, you know, the virtual and the physical. Um, and yes, I mean, I'm, I'm sometimes a little bit flippant about it. And I say, well, if you ride a bicycle, you're a cyborg. Um, but there is a sense in which we have been augmenting ourselves as humans for many centuries. Um, and certainly I have been um, outsourcing or even offloading some of my memory into my tools. So um, I used to be fantastic at remembering phone numbers. I used to pride myself on remembering phone numbers. I really struggle with things like that now because we don't need to remember them. You know, remembering appointments, you don't have to do that anymore. Um, so, uh, um, you know, when we want to find out a bit of information that we used to know, we'll search our emails. We will use a search engine and and that the extent to which we have outsourced that, I think, is just becoming starker and starker. Is legal regulation behind the curve here? Are the developments too fast and potentially dangerous? And you already, both of you, have sort of kind of answered that a little bit, but maybe we could go a bit further in because I think a lot of people will be quite astonished, especially Ashwin, when you say medicine's about 30-odd years. Like that's, that's a horrifying thought. I mean, we have this image that somewhere in like the medical profession that everything's rigorously tested and you know um and it doesn't actually reach us you know anywhere close until it's everyone's super confident of it and we know where the stuff's coming from and how it works etc are you are you debunking that for us <laughs> no maybe let's let's clarify that i think by by being 30 years behind i mean that the technology takes so long to make it to routine clinical use that the technology that we're using in current neural implants is definitely 30 years ago. Right. Um, and therefore, you know, especially as the, the rate of progress speeds up, being 30 years behind is going to be increasingly further and further behind the technological edge. And therefore, I think the, the legal systems need to adapt and the regulatory systems need to adapt to that faster pace of progress. Uh, in order to safely yet efficiently translate technological advances into patient benefit. Because ultimately, that's from the clinical side, that's what we're here for. We're here to make people with illnesses better. And um, if we are limited by regulatory slowness, then that's something that we need to change. And on the computational side of things, what we're talking about here is AI. We're talking about machine learning algorithms and models that are translating the brain signals into patterns and classifying those so that they have meaning that can be actioned. Um, and the reality of that is that there is no regulation of AI right now. Um, in the European Union, they are passing the AI Act um, on Monday of last week. Uh, there was an executive order from President Biden talking about um, AI safety at a very kind of operational, transactional level. We've just had the AI safety summit at Bletchley Park, which was um, unprecedented, really. Um, I was a little bit cynical going as people were going into it. I thought, well, what, is it, what can the UK achieve? This is all going to be determined by the US, the EU and China. But actually... What the government managed to do, in hindsight, is they managed to get everybody who was relevant in the same room, which hasn't happened before. So where regulation is being passed through by governments like the European Union, like the US government, it tends to be 
governments doing this to target tech companies who are being regulated. What happened at Bletchley, which, as I say, I don't think I've seen before at all, and it really is a demonstration of the new world order, is that even though there was some criticism about this, China was invited, China showed up, China signed the declaration that all the other countries signed. We've got 28 countries plus the European Union agreeing at least some basic principles about keeping AI safe. And crucially, industry was invited and had a voice. They weren't just brought along to be told what they were going to do. They were asked how artificial intelligence could be made safe and they were given a chance to shape that as well. So Meta, Elon Musk coming over, OpenAI. And I think I think that's really different. From a medical point of view, there are similar kind of um, discussions and um, committees being set up mm-hmm. to regulate uh, the introduction of AI into everyday medical practice because you know developing an AI algorithm now is I'm going to say relatively easy I couldn't do it myself but I'm going to say it's now relatively easy I think Um, you probably could actually (laughs) who knows Um, but regulating that and introducing that and evaluating it in a clinical setting appropriately are frameworks that we haven't had to deal with before so in, in the research sphere, what we are very good at dealing with is, here's a new drug, does it work for condition X? And we have been doing that for 100 years. We, as medical professionals, pharmaceutical industry, everyone knows the pathway of getting from, I've never used this drug in a human before, to let's use it on everyone with this condition. And that pathway for AI and AI algorithms is just not so clear. And we are trying to figure out how to map that out very clearly so that someone new coming along with an AI algorithm that they want to use in a clinical setting has a very clear step-by-step process of how to implement it and test it safely before widespread clinical use. You're absolutely right. And one of the things we touched on in the lecture that I found really fascinating um, was how um, use of artificial intelligence takes the regulators out of their comfort zones. So as you say, there is that recognized pharma pathway But for then the Federal Drug Administration in the US to have to regulate software as a medical device, you don't necessarily think of software. Well, I don't as a a patient, as a consumer. I don't necessarily think of software, of AI as a medical device. But that's the realm we're in now where pharmaceutical or medical clinical regulators suddenly find themselves in a situation where they've got to hire software engineers to understand how they need to regulate. And and static software is one thing. So you develop software, you develop an AI algorithm, and you implement it. And so that's one side of it, which I think is relatively easy to regulate because you can go through that evaluation process. But what about software that is continually adapting and learning from new data? So then, you know, do you need to evaluate it at every step? Do you need to go back to the start? Um, this isn't well defined and lots of groups who I've heard of um, are kind of working on this process to try and define that pathway more clearly. Yeah, right. And that takes us back to some of the principles of what, you know, what good AI looks like is, you know, two of which are that it's transparent, that you you can understand it and that it's explainable as well, that you can explain it to somebody else. Um, and that's one of the challenges that everybody who's working with AI is having to get their heads around. As we're talking about how these technologies are looking to transform, especially spaces like um, medicine, uh, Ashwin, could we ask uh, what kind of training does a neurosurgeon need to be able to implant a device? 
Yeah, that's really important. And I don't think, especially as new devices come along, I don't think that's well defined. Um, I'm going to tell you about what happens now uh, to get to being a neurosurgeon with a specialist interest in, say, deep brain stimulation. So you go to medical school for six years. Um, you do a couple of years uh, as like an intern and in multiple different specialties. Then you choose to go into neurosurgery and you train to be a neurosurgeon for eight years. And this allows you to do um, kind of uh, most things within the basic kind of neurosurgical sphere. If you're then interested in a particular subfield of neurosurgery, say deep brain stimulation, which is, which we call the field of functional neurosurgery, um, you then spend another year or two at the end of that specializing in just doing these implants, uh, dealing with the, the consequences of them, the complications of them, so that you are fully qualified to be able to deal with that sort of practice. Um, I think in by the end of my career, um, I'm 35, uh, by the end of my career, neurosurgeons of any ilk are going to be implant surgeons and are going to have to need to have that ability to not just put in a particular implant, but be able to adapt, learn how to put new implants in. And that regulation will need to come about because, you know, you only need one of them to go wrong for someone to come back and say, okay, how well were you trained to do this? Um, what what says that you have the right to put in this implant into this particular person? And that raises a really interesting question for me and for folks who work in IT, because one of the things that I've been researching for a while and that sorry for the plug I'm going to be talking about in my next lecture on the 5th of December on the massive internet of things is looking at medical internet of things healthcare internet of things and and the idea that if there is an implant or if there is um, something that is contributing to your healthcare and your well-being that goes wrong and it has an IT component that there will need to be somebody who can explain the technical data around that from the you know the kind of the IT perspective so the the person who can explain what might have gone wrong with the algorithm for instance or the integrity of the training data that was used to train the model that then operated in the closed loop system for instance with a, a digital bridge or a neural implant or um a continuous glucose monitor artificial pancreas etc you know um and that you know almost to the to the question we were talking about in terms of the digital and physical merging that software engineers cybersecurity specialists um chief information officers of nhs trusts are increasingly going to have to step forward and explain the integrity of that data whether there were adequate security measures um, deployed at the time um, because that IT component is becoming more and more important. So just um, for the final question, just um, picking up on this ethical side of things, um, what, for example, w would it be likely, and this is combining a couple of questions that people had, I mean, just this interest in what this technology could potentially do and what the kind of um, tensions around that could be. I mean, could we see a future where these implants do not just try and read what the brain wanted us to do with our arm or, or not, as the case may be, but actually predict our desires more profoundly, like actually um, start 
I suppose, essentially controlling us. Is that is that pure science fiction or is that a genuine thing that we need to be thinking about as we're having these conversations about regulation, as we're having these conversations about how our workspaces will change and our training needs change? Well, I can approach that from the perspective of what already happens today. Um, and we had quite an interesting discussion about this, I think, um, in the question and answer session at the, at the end of the lecture, um, which is that... Um, is it necessary to have a neural interface to do that? And, and uh, you know, when we talk about um, startups pitching their new technologies, what's the business case? Now, there's, there's a business case that, for instance, you could um, buy something as soon as you've thought about it. You know, to, to cut out the mechanical aspect of clicking on a link to pay for a thing. And, and to cut out some of those, almost cut out some of those cognitive steps, you know, of I'm, I'm now going to go on a particular retail website and buy the thing. Um, and so you could end up in a situation where you've thought, oh, I need to buy, I'm obsessed with vacuum cleaners today. Um, I need to buy a new vacuum cleaner. And then all of a sudden you've bought the one that you've searched for a few weeks back without even being aware that you've done that. Um, however, social engineering for good or bad, legitimate or illegitimate, you know, we, we could say that social engineering is successful advertising and successful marketing, particularly behavioural advertising like we've seen in social media um, and in search results over the last decade or so, um, or criminal social engineering where you're falling prey to scams or fake news, disinformation. It, we're able to do that in quite a low-tech way just by persuading people of a thing, by using their social networks, by using recommendations. So at the moment, that feels like a much more scalable and much cheaper way to do that. That's not to say that um, if the price barriers come down for neural implants, etc., that's not to say that they won't be interfered with. Um, but for now, we have cheaper, more accessible ways of doing that. And I think the the regulation side is going to be so cautious about this um, that you know the getting ethical approval to to do that study or or to go down that road road is going to be so hard that that will be a big barrier. Um, I mean, you can you can see how existing technology that is developed to uh, help with neurological disease can then be used to augment a normal person so i guess the the example that's closest is to becoming reality is for memory so people have found particular circuits that they can um stimulate or alter uh, in order to improve memory in people with alzheimer's disease for example and you could see how that technology could be directly translated into a healthy person to see if their memory got better from baseline I think in this situation that the regulations will probably stop us from going there. Um, and I think anyone who kind of goes beyond that is 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 taking a huge risk um, and, and will pay the consequences for it in a way. So I think I think there will be some some halt or some breaks from from regulations and, and, mm. and ethics. And it depends what you mean by mind control as well, doesn't it? Because if I think about the the possible, well, some of the ap existing applications for people with chronic depression and anxiety, well, that is designed to 
influence how you feel, um, but within a very tightly controlled, tightly applied use case. It's whether that escapes clinical applications and, and becomes part of the kind of consumer neural interfaces. I think that, that that's a phrase which I struggle with, consumer neural interfaces. But we do have those that are non-invasive. We have EEG consumer neural interfaces yes. already. Um, we have ones that help us with our sleep, help us with stress relief, etc. Um, so it's, it's taking it out of that space of physical well-being, I guess. Yeah, there's already a, a, a commercial device available. I have no no interest in this, but there's a company called Hum uh, that have developed a, a, a strip that you stick on your forehead, uh, and apparently it releases some current that improves uh, your memory and working performance. Um, and it's like your morning cup of coffee. You stick a little strip on your forehead, and then it's been shown to improve cognitive performance for something like three to four hours afterwards. So with your morning cup of coffee, you stick your little sticker on your forehead, and then you go take your exam, and you do better than you otherwise would have done. Oh, I think I'm going to stick with the coffee. <laughs> thank you very much for joining me today, Victoria and Ashwin, and thank you at home for listening. And by the time this episode is released, Victoria's always men- already mentioned it, but it bears a repeat. Victoria will be preparing her next lecture in the series, The Massive Internet of Things. Don't miss that. That would be great. If you want to hear more of these podcasts, please go to the Gresham website where all of them are stored. Thank you very much, guys. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.